Section 25 of Ulysses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ulysses by James Joyce. Part 2. The Odyssey. Episode 12. Cyclops. Part 3. All those who are interested in the spread of human culture among the lower animals, and their name is Legion, should make a point of not missing the really marvellous exhibition of scientrophy given by the famous old Irish red-setter wolf-dog, formerly known by the sobriquet of Gary Owen, and recently rechristened by his large circle of friends and acquaintances, Owen Gary. The exhibition, which is the result of years of training by kindness and a carefully thought-out dietary system, comprises, among other achievements, the recitation of verse. Our greatest living phonetic expert, while horses shall not drag it from us, has left no stone unturned in his efforts to delucidate and compare the verse recited, and has found it bears a striking resemblance, the italics are ours, to the runs of ancient Celtic bards. We are not speaking so much of those delightful love songs with which the writer who conceals his identity under the graceful pseudonym of the Little Sweet Branch has familiarised the book-loving world, but rather, as a contributor D.O.C. points out in an interesting communication published by an evening contemporary, of the harsher and more personal note which is found in the satirical effusions of the famous raftery and of Donal Macansidine, to say nothing of a more modern lyricist at present very much in the public eye. We subjoin a specimen which has been rendered into English by an eminent scholar, whose name for the moment we are not at liberty to disclose, though we believe that our readers will find the topical allusion rather more than an indication. The metrical system of the canine original which recalls the intricate alliterative and isosyllabic rules of the Welsh Englyn, is infinitely more complicated, but we believe our readers will agree that the spirit has been well caught. Perhaps it should be added that the effect is greatly increased if Owen's verse be spoken somewhat slowly and indistinctly in a tone suggestive of suppressed rancour. The curse of my curses... Seven days every day, and seven dry Thursdays on you, Barney Kearden, has no sup of water to cool my courage, and my guts red roaring after Laurie's lights. So he told Terry to bring him some water for the dog, and God, you could hear him lapping it up a mile off. And Joe asked him, would he have another? I will, says he, Akara, to show there's no ill feeling. Gob, he's not as green as he's cabbage-looking, arsing around from one pub to another, leaving it to your own honour, with old Giltrap's dog, and getting fed up by the ratepayers and corporators, entertainment for man and beast. And, says Joe, could you make a hole in another pint? Could I swim, duck? says I. Same again, Terry, says Joe. Are you sure you won't have anything in the way of liquid refreshment, says he. Thank you, no, says Blue. As a matter of fact, I just wanted to meet Martin Cunningham, don't you see, about this insurance of poor Dignams. Martin asked me to go to the house. You see, he, Dignam, I mean, didn't serve any notice of the assignment on the company at the time, and nominally under the act the mortgagee can't recover on the policy. Holy wars, says Joe, laughing. That's a good one if old Shylock has landed. So the wife comes out top dog, what? 
Well, that's a point, says Bloom, for the wife's admirers. Whose admirers, says Joe. The wife's admirers, I mean, says Bloom. Then he starts all confused, mucking it up about mortgager and under the act like the Lord Chancellor giving it out on the bench for the benefit of the wife and that a trust is created but on the other hand the dignamode bridgeman the money and if now the wife or the widow contested the mortgagee's right till he near had the head of me addled with his mortgager under the act he was bloody safe he wasn't run in himself under the act that time as a rogue and a vagabond only had a friend in court selling bazaar tickets or what do you call it royal hungarian privileged lottery sure as you're there oh commend me to an israelite royal and privileged hungarian robbery so Bob Doran comes lurching around, asking Bloom to tell Mrs. Dignam he was sorry for her trouble, and he was very sorry about the funeral, and to tell her that he said, and everyone who knew him said, that there was never a truer, a finer, than poor little Willie that's dead to tell her. Choking with bloody foolery, and shaking Bloom's hand, doing the tragic to tell her that. Shake hands, brother, you're a rogue and I'm another. Let me, said he, so far presume upon our acquaintance, which however slight it may appear if judged by the standard of mere time is founded as i hope and believe on a sentiment of mutual esteem as to request of you this favour but should i have overstepped the limits of reserve let the sincerity of my feelings be the excuse for my boldness no rejoined the other I appreciate to the full the motives which actuate your conduct, and I shall discharge the office you entrust to me, consoled by the reflection that, though the errand be one of sorrow, this proof of your confidence sweetens in some measure the bitterness of the cup. Then suffer me to take your hand, said he. The goodness of your heart, I feel sure, will dictate to you better than my inadequate words the expressions which are most suitable to convey an emotion whose poignancy, were I to give vent to my feelings, would deprive me even of speech. And off with him and out trying to walk straight. Boozed at five o'clock. Night he was near being lagged, only Paddy Leonard knew the bobby. Fourteen A. Eh? Blind to the world up in a she-bean in Bride Street after closing time. Fornicating with two shawls and a bully on guard drinking porter out of teacups and calling himself a Frenchie for the shawls Joseph Manau and taken against the Catholic religion and he serving mass in Adam and Eve's when he was young with his eyes shut who wrote the New Testament and the Old Testament and Hogan and Smogan and the two shawls killed with the laughing picking his pockets the bloody fool and he spilling the porter all over the bed and the two shawls screeching laughing at one another how is your testament have you got an old testament only Patton was passing there, I tell you what. Then see him of a Sunday with his little concubine of a wife, and she wagging her tail up the aisle of the chapel, with her patent boots on her no less, and her violets, nice as pie, doing the little lady, Jack Mooney's sister, and the old prostitute of a mother, procuring rooms to street couples. Gob, Jack made him toe the line, told him if he didn't patch up the pot, Jesus, he'd kick the shite out of him. So Terry brought the three pints. Here, says Joe, doing the honours. Here, citizen. Slon, Matt, says he. Fortune, Joe, says I. Good health, citizen. Gob, he had his mouth halfway down the tumbler already. What a small fortune to keep him in drinks. Who's the long fellow running for the mayoralty, Alf? says Joe. Friend of yours, says Alf. Nanan, says Joe. The nimbler. I won't mention any names, says Alf. I thought so, says Joe. I saw him up at that meeting now with William Field, MP at the Cattle Traders. 
Harry Iopas, says the citizen, that exploded volcano, the darling of all countries and the idol of his own. So Joe starts telling the citizen about the foot and mouth disease and the cattle traders and taking action in the matter, and the citizen sending them all to the right about, and Bloom coming out with a sheep dip for the scab and a hoose drench for coffin calves, and a guaranteed remedy for timber tongue. Because he was up one time in a knacker's yard, walking about with his book and pencil, here's my head and my heels are coming, till Joe Cuff gave him the order of the boot for giving lip to a grazier. Mr. Noah, teach your grandmother how to milk ducks. Mr. Brooke was telling me in the hotel the wife used to be in rivers of tears sometimes, with Mrs. O'Dowd crying her eyes out with the eight inches of fat all over. Couldn't loosen her farthing strings, but old Cod's eye was waltzing around her showing her how to do it. What's your program today? Aye, humane methods. Because the poor animals suffer, and experts say, and the best known remedy that doesn't cause pain to the animal, and on the sore spot administer gently. God be to have a soft hand under a hen. Gai, gai, garret, cluck, cluck, cluck. Black Liz is our hen, she lays eggs for us. When she lays her eggs, she is so glad. Gara, cluck, cluck, cluck. Then comes good Uncle Leo. He puts his hand under Black Liz and takes her fresh egg. Ga 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 gara cluck cluck cluck. Anyhow, says Joe, Field and Nanetti are going over tonight to London to ask about it on the floor of the House of Commons. Are you sure, says Bloom, the councillor is going? I wanted to see him as it happens. Well, he's going off by the mailboat, says Joe, tonight. That's too bad, says Bloom. I wanted particularly Perhaps only Mr. Field is going. I couldn't phone. No, you're sure? Nanan's going too, says Joe. The League told him to ask a question tomorrow about the Commissioner of Police forbidding Irish games in the park. What do you think of that, citizen? The slew and a heron? Mr. Cow, Conacre, Multifarnum, Nationalist. Arising out of the question of my honourable friend, the member for Chalet, May I ask the right honourable gentleman whether the government has issued orders that these animals shall be slaughtered, though no medical evidence is forthcoming as to their pathological condition? Mr. Alfors Tamoshant, Conservative. Honourable members are already in possession of the evidence produced before a committee of the whole house. I feel I cannot usefully add anything to that. The answer to the honourable member's question is in the affirmative. Mr. O'Reilly O'Reilly. Montanet, Nationalist. Have similar orders been issued for the slaughter of human animals who dare to play Irish games in the Phoenix Park? Mr. Alfors, the answer is in the negative. Mr. Cow Conacre. Has the right honourable gentleman's famous Mitchellstown telegram inspired the policy of gentlemen on the Treasury branch? Oh, oh, Mr. Alfors. I must have notice of that question. Mr. Stalewit, Buncombe Independent. Don't hesitate to shoot. Ironical opposition cheers. The Speaker. Order! Order! The House rises. Cheers. There's the man, says Joe, that made the Gaelic sports revival. There he is sitting there. The man that got away James Stevens. The champion of all Ireland that put in the £16 shot. What was your best throw, citizen? No backlash, says the citizen, letting on to be modest. There was a time I was as good as the next fellow, anyhow. Put it there, citizen, says Joe. You were in a bloody sight better. Is that really a fact, says Elf? Yes, says Bloom, that's well known. Did you not know that?
So off they started about Irish sports and shonine games and the like of lawn tennis and about Hurley and the putting the stone and racy of the soil and building up a nation once again and all to that. And of course Bloom had to have his say too about if a fellow had a rower's heart violent exercise was bad. I declared to my anti-massacre, if you took up a straw from the bloody floor and you said to Bloom, look at Bloom, do you see that straw? There's a straw. Declared to my aunt he'd talk about it for an hour so he wouldn't talk steady. A most interesting discussion took place in the ancient hall of Brian O'Kiernan's in Shroud and a Breton Vug, under the auspices of the Slew and the Heron, on the revival of ancient Gaelic sports and the importance of physical culture as understood in ancient Greece and ancient Rome and ancient Ireland for the development of the race. The venerable president of the noble order was in the chair, and the attendance was of large dimensions. After an instructive discourse by the chairman, a magnificent oration eloquently and forcibly expressed, a most interesting and instructive discussion of the usual high standard of excellence ensued as to the desirability of the revivability of the ancient games and sports of our ancient pan-Celtic forefathers. The well-known and highly respected worker in the cause of our old tongue, Mr. Joseph McCarty Hines, made an eloquent appeal for the resuscitation of the ancient Gaelic sports and pastimes practised morning and evening by Finn McCool as calculated to revive the best traditions of manly strength and prowess handed down to us from the ancient ages. L. Bloom, who met with a mixed reception of applause and hisses, having espoused the negative, the vocalist chairman brought the discussion to a close in response to a repeated requests and hearty plaudits from all parts of a bumper house, by a remarkably noteworthy rendering of the immortal Thomas Osborne Davis's evergreen verses, happily too familiar to need recalling here, a nation once again, in the execution of which the veteran patriot champion may be said without fear of contradiction to have fairly excelled himself. The Irish Caruso Garibaldi was in superlative form, and his stentorian notes were heard to the greatest advantage in the time-honoured anthem, sung as only our citizen can sing it. His superb high-class vocalism, which by its super-quality greatly enhanced his already international reputation, was vociferously applauded by the large audience, among which were to be noticed many prominent members of clergy, as well as representatives of the press and the bar and the other learned professions. The proceedings then terminated. Among the clergy present were the Very Reverend William Delaney S.J.L.L.D., the Right Reverend Gerald Malloy, D.D., the Reverend P.J. Kavanagh, C.S.S.P., the Reverend T. Waters, C.C., the Reverend John M. Ivers, P.P., the Reverend P.J. Cleary, O.S.F., the Reverend L.J. Hickey, O.P., the Very Reverend Father Nicholas, O.S.F.C., the Very Reverend B. Gorman, O.D.C., the Reverend T. Maurer, S.J., the Very Reverend James Murphy, S.J., the Reverend John Lavery, V.F., the Very Reverend William Doherty, D.D., the Reverend Peter Fagan, O.M., the Reverend T. Brannigan, O.S.A., the Reverend J. Flavin, C.C., the Reverend M.A. Hackett, C.C., the Reverend W. Hurley, C.C., the Right Reverend Monsignor McManus, V.G., the Reverend B. R. Slattery, O.M.I., 
the Very Reverend M. D. Scally, P.P., the Reverend F. T. Purcell, O.P., the Very Reverend Timothy Cannon Gorman, P.P., the Reverend J. Flanagan, C.C. The laity included P. Fay, T. Quirk, etc., etc. Talking about violent exercise, says Alf, were you at that Kyo Bennett match? No, says Joe. I heard so-and-so made a cool hundred quid over it, says Alf. Who? Blazes, says Joe. And says Bloom, what I meant about tennis, for example, is the agility and training the eye. Aye, Blazes, says Alf. He let out that Myler was on the beer to run up the odds, and he's swatting all the time. We know him, says the citizen, the traitor's son. We know what put English gold in his pocket. True for you, says Joe. And Bloom cuts in again about lawn tennis and the circulation of the blood, asking Alf, Now don't you think, Bergen? Myler dusted the floor with him, says Alf. Heenan and Sayers was only a bloody fool to it, handed him the father and mother of a beaten. See the little kipper not up to his navel, and the big fellow swiping. God, he gave him one last puck in the wind. Queensbury rules and all made him puke what he never ate. It was a historic and a hefty battle when Myler and Percy were scheduled to don the gloves for the purse of fifty sovereigns. Handicapped as he was by lack of poundage, Dublin's pet lamb made up for it by superlative skill in ringcraft. The final bout of fireworks was a gruelling for both champions. The welterweight sergeant major had tapped some lively claret in the previous mix-up during which Kyo had been receiver general of rights and lefts, the artilleryman putting in some neat work on the pet's nose, and Myler came on looking groggy. The soldier got to business, leading off with a powerful left jab to which the Irish gladiator retaliated by shooting out a stiff one flush to the point of Bennett's jaw. The redcoat ducked, but the Dubliner lifted him with a left hook, the body punch being a fine one. The men came to hand grips. Myler quickly became busy and got his man under, the bout ending with the bulkier man on the ropes, Myler punishing him. The Englishman, whose right eye was nearly closed, took his corner where he was liberally drenched with water, and when the bell went, came on gamey and brimful of pluck, confident of knocking out the fistic Eblinite in jig time. It was a fight to a finish, and the best man for it. The two fought like tigers, and excitement ran fever-high. The referee twice cautioned, pucking Percy for holding, but the pet was tricky and his footwork a treat to watch. After a brisk exchange of courtesies, during which a smart uppercut of the military man brought blood freely from his opponent's mouth, the lamb suddenly waded in all over his man, and landed a terrific left to battling Bennett's stomach, flooring him flat. It was a knockout clean and clever. Amid tense expression, the portobello bruiser was being counted out when Bennett's second old Fots Wettstein threw in the towel, and the sentry boy was declared victor for the frenzied cheers of the public who broke through the tight ropes and fairly mobbed him with delight. He knows which side his bread is buttered, says Alf. I hear he's running a concert tour now up in the north. He is, says Joe, isn't he? Who, says Bloom. Ah, yes, that's quite true. Yes, a kind of summer tour, you see. Just a holiday. Mrs. B is the bright particular star, isn't she, says Joe. My wife, says Bloom. She's singing, yes. I think it will be a success, too. He's an excellent man to organise. Excellent. 
Ho, ho, begum, says I to myself, says I. That explains the milk in the coconut and the absence of hair on the animal's chest. Blazes doing the tootle on the flute. Concert tour. Dirty Dan, the Dodger's son off Island Bridge that sold the same horses twice over to the government to fight the Boers. Old what, what? I called about the poor and water rate, Mr. Boylan. Ye what? The water rate, Mr. Boylan. Ye what, what? That's the bucko that'll organise her. Take my tip. Twixt me and you, Catterish. Pride of Cubs, Rocky Mount, the raven-haired daughter of Tweedy. There grew she to peerless beauty, where loquat and almond scent the air. The gardens of Alameda knew her step. The guards of olives knew and bowed. The chaste spouse of Leopold is she, Marion of the bountiful bosoms. And lo, there entered one of the clan of the O'Malloys, a comely hero of white face, yet withal somewhat ruddy. His Majesty's counsel learned in the law, and with him the prince and heir of the noble line of Lambert. Hello, Ned. Hello, Alf. Hello, Jack. Hello, Joe. God save you, says the citizen. Save you kindly, says J.J. What'll it be, Ned? Half one, says Ned. So J.J. ordered the drinks. Were you round at the court, says Joe. Yes, says J.J. He'll square that, Ned, says he. I hope so, says Ned. Now what were those two at? J.J. getting him off the grand jury list, and the other give him a leg over the stile. What's his name in stubs? Playing cards, hobnobbing with flash toffs with a swank glass in their eye, a drinking fizz, and he half smothered in writs and garnishy orders. Pawning his gold watch in Cummins of Francis Street, where no one would know him in the private office when I was there with Pisser releasing his boots out of the pop. What's your name, sir? Dunn, says he. Aye, and Dunn, says I. Gob, he'll come home by weeping cross one of those days, I'm thinking. Did you see that bloody lunatic Breen round there, says Alf? You pee up. Yes, says JJ. Looking for a private detective. Aye, says Ned, and he wanted right go wrong to address the court, only Corny Kelleher got round telling him to get the handwriting examined first. Ten thousand pounds, says Alf, laughing. God, I'd give anything to hear him before a judge and jury. Was it you did it, Alf? says Joe. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, Jimmy Johnson. Me, says Alf, don't cast your nasturtiums on my character. Whatever statement you make, says Joe, will be taken down in evidence against you. Of course, an action would lie, says J.J. It implies that he is not compus mentis, U.P. up. Compass your eye, says Alf, laughing. Do you know that he's balmy? Look at his head. Do you know that some mornings he has to get his hat on with a shoehorn? Yes, says J.J., but the truth of a libel is no defence to an indictment for publishing it in the eyes of the law. Ha ha, Alf, says Joe. Still, says Bloom, on account of the poor woman, I mean his wife. Pity about her, says the citizen, or any other woman marries a half and half. How half and half, says Bloom? Do you mean he... Half and half, I mean, says the citizen. A fellow that's neither fish nor flesh. Nor good red herring, says Joe. That's what I mean, says the citizen. A fishogue, if you know what that is. Begob, I saw there was trouble coming. And Bloom explaining he meant on account of it being cruel for the wife, having to go round after the old stuttering fool. Cruelty to animals, so it is, to let that bloody poverty-stricken brain out on grass with his beard out tripping him, bringing down the rain. 
and she with her nose cock-a-hoop after she married him because a cousin of his old fellow's was pew-opener to the Pope. Picture of him on the wall with his smashed Sweeney's moustaches, the Signor Brini from Summer Hill, the Italiano, papal suave to the Holy Father, has left the key and gone to Moss Street. And who was he, tell us? A nobody. A two-pair back in passages, at seven shillings a week, and he covered with all kinds of breastplates bidding defiance to the world. And moreover, says J.J., a postcard is publication. It was held to be sufficient evidence of malice in the test case, Sadgrove versus Hole. In my opinion, an action might lie. Six and eightpence, please. Who wants your opinion? Let us drink our points in peace. Gob, we won't be let even do that much itself. Well, good health, Jack, says Ned. Good health, Ned, says J.J. There he is again, says Joe. Where, says Alf, and Bigab he was passing the door with his books under his oxter, and the wife beside him, and Corney Kelleher with his wall-eye looking in as they went past, talking to him like a father, trying to sell him a second-hand coffin. How did that Canada swindle case go off, says Joe? Remanded, says J.J. One of the bottlenose fraternity it was went by the name of James Wout, alias Shapiro, alias Spark and Spiro, Put that in the paper saying he'd give passage to Canada for twenty bob. What? Did you see any green in the white of my eye? Of course it was a bloody barney. What? Swindled them all. Skivvies and boddocks from the county meat, aye, and his own kidney too. J.J. was telling us there was an ancient Hebrew Zaretsky or something weeping in the witness box with his hat on him, swearing by the holy Moses he was stuck for two quid. Who tried the case, says Joe? Recorder, says Ned. Poor old Sir Frederick, says Alf. You can cut him up to the two eyes. Heart as big as a lion, says Ned. Tell him a tale of woe about arrears of rent and a sick wife and a squad of kids and faith he'd dissolve in tears on the bench. Aye, says Alf. Reuben Jay was bloody lucky he didn't clap him in the dock the other day for suing poor little Gumley that's minding stones for the corporation there near Buttbridge. And he starts taking off the old recorder, letting on to cry, A most scandalous thing. This poor hard-working man. How many children? Ten, did you say? Yes, your worship, and my wife has the typhoid. And the wife with typhoid fever. Scandalous. Leave the court immediately, sir. No, sir, I'll make no order for payment. How dare you, sir, come up before me and ask me to make an order? A poor, hard-working, industrious man. I dismiss the case. End of section 25